everyone, and welcome to the July 25th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The U.S. Department of Justice and attorneys general from multiple states filed litigation to block Anthem's proposed acquisition of Cigna and Aetna's proposed acquisition of Humana. Officials allege that the transactions would limit competition across the country, reducing from five to three the number of large national health insurers. The lawsuits allege that the two mergers valued at $54 billion and $37 billion would limit price competition, reduce benefits, decrease incentives to provide innovative wellness programs, and lower the quality of care. Eleven states, including California, joined the department's challenge of Anthem's $54 billion acquisition of Cigna. Eight states joined the department's challenge of Aetna's $37 billion acquisition of Humana. The lawsuit against Aetna and Humana alleges that their merger would substantially reduce Medicare Advantage competition in more than 350 counties in 21 states, affecting more than 1.5 million Medicare Advantage customers. Aetna is the nation's fourth-largest Medicare Advantage insurer by membership and has nearly doubled its Medicare Advantage footprint over the past four years. Humana is the nation's second-largest Medicare Advantage insurer by membership. The lawsuit alleges that by buying Humana, Aetna would eliminate one of its strongest and most capable competitors in these markets. In 2015, Anthem reported over $79 billion in revenues, and Aetna reported $60 billion in revenues, while Humana reported $54 billion in revenues, with Cigna reporting $38 billion in revenues. A new panel decision held that the WCAB rules of practice and procedure do not apply to the UR process. Here's what happened in the case of Tabas versus Regents of the University of California. The claimant suffered an injury while employed by the university. The primary treating physician, Dr. Simon Lavi, submitted a request for authorization for medical treatment back on January 20. The employer had five business days to issue a decision to approve, modify, delay, or deny the request. Five business days later, the UR provider issued a timely denial. At trial, the employer presented a fax transmission form showing that the UR denial was faxed to Dr. Lavi on the date of the decision. Additionally, in a report authored by the doctor the very next day after the UR denial, Dr. Lavi confirmed receipt of the UR document. Thus, the UR denial was communicated to Dr. Lavi within 24 hours of the determination. But applicant's attorney argued that the UR provider did not provide a proof of service as purportedly required by the WCAB Rule 10505F. And for that reason, he claimed the UR denial was not timely and the WCAB had jurisdiction to determine the medical necessity of the requested treatment. But the work comp judge found that the defendant had timely completed the utilization review. And the WCAB denied reconsideration in the panel decision. 
Applicant's attorney argued on reconsideration that the UR provider did not provide a proof of service as purportedly required by the WCAB rules. But the WCAB concluded that the Rule 10505 is part of the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board rules of practice and procedure and applies to proceedings before the WCAB, not to UR proceedings. The panel said, although the best practice is to include a proof of service, a proof of service is not the exclusive means for proving that a utilization review document has been timely served. In this case, the fax transmission sheet and Dr. Lavi's confirmation, both of which were unrebutted, constitute ample evidence that utilization review timelines were met. Dozens of professional wrestlers have filed a concussion-related class-action lawsuit against World Wrestling Entertainment. The suit alleges that the wrestlers incurred long-term neurological injuries from a company that they say routinely failed to care for them and fraudulently misrepresented and concealed the nature and extent of those injuries. The 214-page complaint says that WWE wrestling matches, unlike other contact sports, involve very specific moves that are scripted, controlled, directed, and choreographed by the WWE. As such, the players claim the moves that resulted in head injuries were the direct result of WWE's actions. In other words, the head trauma has resulted in injury as a result of the accumulative effect of many impacts to the athletes' heads that occurred on a regular, routine basis during their WWE career. 53 wrestlers, including big names like Superfly Jimmy Snuka and Joe Road Warrior Animal Luriantis, are the named plaintiffs. In 2015, Snutka was arrested for the 1983 death of his then-girlfriend, Nancy Argentino, but he was ruled not mentally competent to stand trial this past June. The plaintiffs also include a number of former WWE stars from the 1980s and 1990s. WWE superstars are classified as independent contractors, contractors, so unlike football, or hockey, there is no union to represent them. The lawsuit makes the claim that the independent contractor designation is incorrect. The WWE responded with a statement saying that this is another ridiculous attempt by the same attorney who has previously filed class action lawsuits against the WWE, both of which have been dismissed. The lawyer in question was Massachusetts-based Constantine Kairos, who has previously filed lawsuits against the WWE with similar claims. The company has succeeded in having some of those suits dismissed, but one involving former WWE wrestlers Vito LaGrasso and Evan Singleton is still being contested in court. U.S. District Judge Vanessa Bryant wrote in March while dismissing several complaints against the WWE, that the plaintiffs were injured by other participants in what the plaintiffs described as a scripted performance and thus in a manner that the plaintiffs knew or should have known and reasonably anticipated. 
The NFL and National Hockey League have also seen class action lawsuits related to players suffering brain injuries. In April, a federal judge upheld a settlement between the NFL and thousands of former players that could result in total payments of more than $1 billion. And now our crime report. Sean O'Keefe was a well-known applicant's attorney in San Diego. Public records list him as the lawyer on about 9,000 injured workers' cases. And in recently released court records, he admitted to a grand jury that he paid cash for the bulk of the clients who walked through his door. O'Keefe testified that he paid a firm to send him at least two-thirds of these clients. He also promised the recruiter, Carlos Aguello, that he would make sure those workers ran up bills at certain medical providers who offered MRIs, sleep studies, psychology, medications, and toxicology screenings. And O'Keefe explained to the San Diego grand jury on December 1 that he was greedy and stupid. O'Keefe's revelations came in testimony recently unsealed in one of more than a dozen criminal cases against more than 100 people who made their living off the medical care rendered to California's injured workers. His testimony highlights Arguello's recruitment firm, Centro Legal, as a big player. O'Keefe said the operation was so efficient that the kickback cash flow was almost universal in the treatment of Latino injured workers in Southern California. The testimony sheds light on the way injured workers are used for profit, regardless of their medical needs. It also reveals the ongoing efforts of prosecutors to clean up a system that California lawmakers and officials are charged with governing. O'Keefe, who is now barred from practicing law, testified that he earned about $1.1 million a year representing injured workers. He pleaded guilty in August 2014 to federal charges of health care fraud and agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in hopes of a more lenient sentence. In the recently unsealed San Diego County Superior Court testimony, he broke down how the kickback scheme worked. Arguello has pleaded not guilty to federal charges related to his alleged patient recruiting and referral scheme. An FBI agent who testified in the case said Arguello's firm engaged in guerrilla marketing, passing out cards at the border crossing to Tijuana, Mexico, putting them on parked cars, and displaying them in restaurants. The cards advised workers that they could earn up to $4,000 a year if they were injured at work. O'Keefe said Arguello told him which chiropractor or doctor to which the patient would be referred. The doctor, in turn, would cut his or her own deals over the patient's referrals for MRIs, sleep studies, nerve tests, and medicated pain creams. O'Keefe noted that he did not sell all of his clients into Arguello's network of preferred doctors and chiropractors. He said he would engage in some smoke and mirrors and spread the clients around a little bit so workers' compensation insurers would not cry foul over his practices. Otherwise, he said, you could not do what he's been doing for decades. 
The California Department of Insurance reached a $30 million settlement of a lawsuit with pharmaceutical giant Bristol Myers Squibb over allegations of drug marketing fraud and physician kickbacks. This case was initially filed by former Bristol Myers Squibb employees, including Lucius Allen, a former Los Angeles Lakers basketball player. The plaintiffs allege that Bristol Myers Squibb violated the California Insurance Frauds Prevention Act by using kickbacks to increase physician prescriptions of several drugs produced by Bristol Myers. Enticements allegedly included box suites at sporting events where physicians were provided tickets, food, drinks, and parking and enrollment in a Lakers basketball camp for doctors and their children. They were also given prepaid golf outings at luxurious golf courses and tickets to see Broadway plays in California cities. Monetary incentives were given to doctors responsible for prescription drug decisions for formularies and lavish dinners, resort hotel trips, and concert tickets were given to doctors who were large-volume prescribers. Many insurers were alleged to have been defrauded, including Prudential, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield of California, to name just a few. In addition to the $30 million payment, the settlement agreement requires Bristol-Myers Squibb to affirm its commitment to abide by California laws regulating its sales representatives' interactions with doctors. Among other requirements, Bristol-Myers Squibb is required to utilize a comprehensive compliance program that is in accordance with the Office of Inspector General's guidance for pharmaceutical manufacturers. The settlement payment will be divided between the whistleblowers and the state of California, who will receive $14.1 million. Bristol-Myers Squibb did not admit to wrongdoing in the settlement agreement. The owners and employees of a popular San Jose spa have been sentenced for health care insurance fraud. An investigation showed that they were billing insurance companies thousands of dollars for chiropractic treatments, when in reality they were providing free pedicures and spa services. The year-long investigation by authorities, codenamed Operation Nail Polish, revealed fraudulent billing resulting in over $7 million in losses. It is the largest medical billing fraud case to be prosecuted in Santa Clara County. An undercover investigator went into the Landis Avenue Spa numerous times starting in 2012 for manicures and pedicures. The employees took insurance information and then illegally charged the investigator's insurance company for chiropractic treatments. The undercover investigator actually received eight free mani pedis for which the insurance company was charged more than $2,000. The investigation then uncovered that this illegal practice was being used for many other clients. Investigators estimated that about 90% of the spa's practice was fraudulently billed. Chiropractor, 39-year-old Tracy Thu Kok Min Lee, her husband, 38-year-old Than Trung Tran, and employees, 39-year-old Lillian Yen Lon B and 37-year-old Hagam Thai Tran, 
all of San Jose were arrested and were each charged with 11 counts of health insurance fraud. Tracy Lee was sentenced to serve two years in county jail, and Lillian B. was sentenced to serve six months in county jail, and both will have former formal probation. Hongam Tron was sentenced to serve 10 months in county jail and to 24 years former formal probation. The three defendants were also ordered to pay over $6 million in restitution. 59-year-old Alberto Rodriguez, who lives in Santa Barbara, entered a plea to three felony counts and one misdemeanor count in Santa Barbara Superior Court. The investigation into Rodriguez and his business, United Seal Coating and Slurry Seal Incorporated, began in 2013 by detectives from the California Department of Insurance, along with investigators from the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office. At the time, Rodriguez was performing numerous public works contracts for the University of California at Santa Barbara. One of his workers was injured on the job and filed a workers' comp claim. Rodriguez denied that the worker was his employee, which was later determined to be false. The investigation into the workers' compensation fraud charges led investigators to other criminal conduct by Rodriguez and his business. Rodriguez pled guilty to one felony count of tax fraud for filing a fraudulent tax return, one felony count of workers' compensation insurance fraud, one felony count of supplying false or fraudulent payroll documentation, and one misdemeanor count of labor code violations. He will be sentenced next January, most likely, to one year in county jail and be ordered to pay more than $65,000 restitution to the EDD and more than $77,000 to the state fund. And in regulatory news, Packaging medical records and moving them over to a PTP or UR or IMR or the WCAB is an incessant, repetitive, and time-consuming task for claim administrators. Yet many health industry experts say medical data sharing should not be the challenge that it is in 2016 in the era of such user-friendly internet services as Facebook and Google. It is shocking to some that pertinent and sensitive medical information should still live in PDF files attached to emails or be delivered by fax machine. Calls for the digitization of health information with a goal of lowering costs and delivering higher quality care date back to the Clinton era. Former President George W. Bush also chose the issue as a personal passion project noting in his 2004 State of the Union address that doctors could save more lives when armed with modern technology. But it was not until 2009 that President Obama signed a law that attempted to speed the transition from paper records to electronic files. Doctors and hospitals were offered incentive payments through Medicare and Medicaid if they used electronic medical records. This law was called the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, or HITECH Act. It provided roughly $30 billion over 10 years for the program that took effect in 2011. Now hospitals have spent millions, sometimes billions, 
on computer systems to facilitate the purpose of the HITECH Act. But nowhere in the law was it required that these systems had to talk with each other. There's a fancy word for this. It's called interoperability. And still today, the inability to share health information across medical systems is adversely limiting access to high-quality health care. Most patients walk into a hospital as a complete stranger. These hospitals thrive in this status quo, and there is little incentive to share access to the records of those lucrative patients. But now the government is trying to address the interoperability problem. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has been taking public comments on a new roadmap designed to approve more uniform technical standards for electronic medical records. And experts say the payoff of getting it right is big. Benefits of seamless electronic medical records include personalized medicine, better preventative care, and accessing doctors and medical information through mobile devices such as smartphones and tablets. And for claim administrators, the movement of medical records from PTP to IMR may end up as easy as point and click. And in medical news, legalization of medical marijuana has been one of the most controversial areas of state policy change over the past 20 years. And little is known about whether medical marijuana is being used clinically to any significant degree. But now a new study released in the journal Health Affairs found that in the 17 states with medical marijuana laws, prescriptions for painkillers fell sharply compared with states that did not have a medical marijuana law. And the drops were quite significant. In medical marijuana states, the average doctor prescribed 265 fewer doses of antidepressants each year. 486 fewer doses of Caesar medication, 541 fewer anti-nausea doses, and 562 fewer doses of anti-anxiety medication a year. But most strikingly, the typical physician in a medical marijuana state prescribed 1,826 fewer doses of painkillers in a given year. These conditions are among those for which medical marijuana is most often approved under state laws. Researchers ran a similar analysis on drug categories that pot typically is not recommended for, blood thinners, antiviral drugs, and antibiotics. And on those drugs, they found no changes in prescribing patterns after the passage of marijuana laws. The lead author wrote that the results suggest people are really using marijuana as medicine and not just using it for recreational purposes. And the tanking numbers for painkiller prescriptions in medical marijuana states are likely to cause some concern among pharmaceutical companies. These companies have long been at the forefront of opposition to marijuana laws, funding research by anti-pot academics and funneling dollars to groups such as the Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America that oppose marijuana legalization. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more.
And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.